If you enjoy this podcast, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and visit our website at lifebetweenthevines.com. When I was here in the late 60s, my dad ran Inglenook. I worked at Inglenook as a kid. Uh, I was 19 years old, I think. You know, there was Charles Krug, Louis Martini, Inglenook, Beaulieu, Berenger, Joseph Phelps was, uh, had just started, Heights, uh, Stony Hill had been started in the, in the mid-50s or late-50s, and that was it. Discovering and tasting wine shouldn't be a homework assignment, and we believe that the people who are closest to wine have the best stories. So open a bottle. And welcome to podcast number 538. This week we feature Doug Fletcher, winemaker and consultant at Clips and Vineyards, Red Mountain, Yakima Valley. Doug Fletcher is back. Many of our listeners will remember Doug from podcast number 20 way back in 2010. At that time, Doug was vice president of winemaking for Turlotta Wines. Today, he is out of retirement making wine and consulting at Clipson Vineyard, Red Mountain, Yakima Valley, Washington. I joined Doug at the Rutherford Hill Caves in Napa Valley to learn more about his adventures in the great state of Washington. You can also hear Doug on our Vino Lingo segment defining the term corked wine. It's been a few years, but I am back with Doug Fletcher, and uh, Doug is winemaker extraordinaire of, uh, well, Rutherford Hill. You're director of winemaking at one time, as I recall. Uh, you've worn a few hats over the years for Turlato Wines, right? Yes, I started out as um, the winemaker at Chimney Rock before the Turlatos bought it uh, for Hack Wilson. And when the Turlatos bought the property, um, they kind of got me along with the deal, I suppose. Uh, and then uh, uh, a couple of years after that, the the guy that was running Rutherford Hill at the time needed some help up here with winemaking, and so he asked me if I would help him. And I said, well, sure, but I need to have some authority to do that. The winemakers up here aren't going to take kindly to me just telling them what to do. So uh, they made me the VP of winemaking for all the Toronto properties, and so that's how I got started. Nice. Not a bad situation. Yeah. And, and so to be clear, we are at Rutherford Hill, but that's not going to be the subject of this conversation. We're going to be talking about a vineyard in the great state of Washington, and this is a vineyard you're involved in, and that's the vineyard is called Clipson, correct? Yes. Um, the Turlatos were looking for um, property in Washington for a long time, actually, and, and I went up and looked at several properties for them over the years, and uh, uh, one in Walla Walla and, and uh, another one. And uh, at some point, they called me up and said, you know, they're looking at this property in Red Mountain. Would I go look at it? And so uh, I went with the the chief financial officer at the time, and he and I went up and looked at it. It's like, God, this is great. Um, Clipson is the original, um, well, maybe not the first, but it's really the best known property in, in, uh, in Red Mountain. And it was started by the Gellises, and uh, Patricia Gellis kind of ran the operation, uh, and her husband was a metallurgist at Hanford. And they bought the property in the early 80s when it was just sagebrush uh, and thought, you know, they didn't know anything about wine. 
but they thought, well, let's put a vineyard in. And of course, it ended up being in a good spot. And so um, she was very clever at, at developing uh, the brand. And uh, Clipson is the, the, the word itself is an interesting I was going to get to that, yeah. Okay, well, it's, a, it's a pigeon English. Um, it's not, um, you know, if you go back far enough, the Native Americans in, in the Northwest were fur, fur traders with the, um, what's the, the trading company in Britain? The, well, one of the early trading companies that, that, that tr- traded in furs and stuff. And the, of course, the British weren't going to uh, learn any of the Native American languages, so the Indians had to learn English. And so most of them got by with whatever, you know, they could get, make themselves understood. And so most of it was, there's a whole pidgin language in the Northwest from several of these American uh, Indian tribes, and Clipson means clipped sun. So it's the setting sun. So oh. if you think about it, you know, as the sun goes down over the horizon, it's only half of it, and that's clipped in their mind, and so it was the clipped sun. Makes good sense. It was a, it's a perfectly lovely word, and it fits the, the concept of, of um, Northwest and Washington being independent or separate from other wine regions. And, you know, why not use a word like that? So yeah. that's how they came by it. And then Patricia was very careful with her brand. And so they uh, only sold fruit to—they didn't have their own winery and never did. Um, but she only sold fruit to people that uh, she thought made the best wines in Washington. And so, uh, and she would, on s- several occasions, made a point to say that wineries that had gotten 100 points, and you name the, the reviewer, um, it was because of her wine, mm-hmm. her grapes. Yeah, sure. and, and I just remember once uh, her telling the story about calling up one winemaker and said, you know, What'd you, what'd you do to my grapes? I don't like this. And she quit selling them to him. Wow. So she, was, she ran things with an iron fist. And in fact, many of the winemakers I talked to that we, we still sell fruit to up there, um, you know, they, they uh, have lots of stories about her. <laughs> so um, I so, think there still are a couple people in this business like that, actually. Yes, yeah. yeah. So when the Trilados, uh sent me up there to look at it, I thought, well, oh, God, this is a really great spot. And so it took us almost a year to to um, go through all the due diligence and stuff to buy the property. And that was because of water rights. In Washington, if you don't have a water right, you don't have anything. Hmm. I mean, uh, I remember John Trelato, um asking me about, could we dry farm up there? And I said, well, yeah, if you want to grow sagebrush, um, you know, it's, you get three inches of uh, rain a year. That's it. And, you know, grapevines take about 18 to grow. And let That's, me let me just jump in real quick too. This oh, is sure. the Yakima Valley, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Just so people understand, this it's a bit more of a deserty kind of area. Not and, a bit more deserty. Okay. It's desert. <laughs> I was trying to be polite. To yeah. The desert. <laughs> but you know, um, to to uh, delve into that a little bit, most people think of desert as hot, mm. um, but it's not necessarily hot. It's just doesn't have any water, and um, the Yakima Valley is in the rain shadow of the Cascades, and so as the weather comes from the west, as the, the um, clouds go over the Cascades, they 
cool and they all the water rains out there and so you know in um in the olympic national forest they get 200 inches of rain a year or maybe 300 in some cases and on the rain shadow side of the cascades we get three but the interesting thing is it's not because it's far enough north it's not very hot i mean it's warm but it's not uh, in fact um i think uh richmond which is the, the closest little town to to the vineyards um has the same number of days over 90 degrees as saint helena really yeah most people don't realize that that you know it's like it's just it's just dry up there sure. And so uh, that's, I, I'm, until I got involved up there, I didn't really realize what that meant. Um, it's, uh, it means that the grapevines are totally dependent on you as a, as a viticulturist. Interesting. So um, if the vines grow too much or they don't grow enough, it's your fault because you didn't, you, you didn't water them properly. So that makes for a huge um, advantage to almost any place else in the world. I want to go back to what something you said before. Uh, when you saw the property, uh, I don't remember what your exact words were, but you were quite impressed by it. Yeah. What, as a winemaker, we always talk about terroir. What specifically did you see that said to you, this will be good? Well, just that, the, uh, the ability to manage the water. So, for example, in Bordeaux, you know, they're always talking about they don't have to irrigate and that, you know, they use that as a pejorative in Napa Valley, you know, oh, you guys have to irrigate. Well, okay, God irrigates for them. If you, if you look at the rainfall in, in uh, Bordeaux, they get about the same amount of rain as we do in Napa. They just get an even amount every month all year long. So they have about 30 inches of rain usually a year. And and so during the middle of the summer, they get, you know, a, a third of that. And that's too much water for grapevines. And so what I tell people is that, you know, God irrigates for them and, uh, and God isn't necessarily interested in making fine wine. And so here, and here in Napa, the issue is um, spring rains. So if you get, if we have a dry winter or or the rains are early, like you know, uh, November, December, uh, and the soils dry out a, a bit, then you don't have so much trouble in the spring. But if it rains in May, those are the years where the harvests aren't as interesting. And that's because those vines are growing and you can't get the water away from them. And if they grow too much, then the berry size gets bigger. And it's the berry size that really does, I think, in many ways, drives wine quality. Sure, I've certainly heard that many times over the years. Yeah. So in Washington, in, in, the, in the Red Mountain area, the terroir, or the soils, were really laid down by during the Ice Age. You probably know about the Missoula floods or have heard about them. All of Montana was a big lake, and as the glaciers covered the the um, Columbia and the Snake Rivers, this big lake backed up behind the, the, the ice dams. And when those ice dams would break, all, that whole huge lake would drain in a, in a month. Mm. And that's why the, the Columbia Gorge looks like what it does is because it just blasted, you know, 
water down through uh, the river gorge and carved it out. And it's been, it's recent enough that that hasn't eroded away. So that's why the cliffs are so steep. Uh, it's even like, it's like dirt when you were a kid and you see water coming yeah, through. Yeah, that's it right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in the Red Mountain area, uh, each one of those big floods would lay down, you know, 30 feet of, of silt. And so the, the soils are sandy, but they're pretty rich uh, with minerals and they're well drained. So in the winter, if you get four inches of rain by bud break, it's pretty well drained out. Hmm. So I just remember the vineyard company that's working for us up there, you know, looking at, okay, we need to start irrigating before bud break. I was like, you're kidding. I'm from Napa where you would never consider doing that. <laughs> but up there, you have to get enough water in the soil to get the shoot length you want early. And so it's, you're in total control, which is amazing. That's got to be a lot of fun for you as a winemaker. Yeah. Well, let me, let me go back to that very word, actually, winemaker. Now, are you actually the winemaker? Or are, you, are you consulting? What is your role there with Clipson? Uh, both. Okay. I, I am the winemaker, and I'm consulting for them. So when I left the Trilados, like I was saying earlier, um, uh, we were in the middle of, of uh, you know, replanting part of the, the vineyard. Part, part of the reason that the Gellises, I think, were interested in selling the property originally was that they, you know, they're, they were in their late 70s and the vineyard was, uh, you know, 25 to 30 years old. Sure. And at the time they planted it, like everybody up there, they didn't pay attention to leaf roll virus, and so all most all the vineyards in eastern Washington, if they were, if they were that far back, all had leaf roll virus. And you know, by the time at, at, uh, by the time the vines get to be 20 years old, that leaf roll virus has taken its toll, and and a lot of times the, the it just doesn't get quite ripe enough. I mean, it, it might get sugar ripe, but it doesn't get mature flavors. And so um, I, there's lots of talk about you know, that leaf roll virus improves the quality. But if you talk to most winemakers and say, would you, you choose, you want vines that have leaf roll virus or not? I yeah. can't think of a single one that'll say, oh yeah, now I want leaf roll virus vines. It's like one of those great suggestions somebody gives you and you're kind of rolling your eyes like, don't, I can do this. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious though too, now, is this strictly affecting the leaf or is this something that actually kills the plant itself? Oh, leaf roll virus doesn't kill the plant. It's, you know, uh, all those beautiful uh, photographs of vineyards in the fall where the leaves are all red, mm. that's leaf roll virus. Oh, okay. I just want to get an idea of that for yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, the color that, that grapevine leaves should turn in the fall is yellow. And that's an indication of, of um, well, I don't need to go into the physiology of it, but uh, uh, the redness means that the leaves still have sugar in them when they shouldn't. The things we learn in this podcast. <laughs> now, I want to go back to the original okay. conversation about the property. Uh, how many acres are you farming there? Well, the property is 250 acres, I think. But uh, because of the water rights, we only are allowed to plant uh, 140 acres. That's still pretty big. It's so. big. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, a big, it's a big vineyard. So um, originally, they the... The Gallus has only had 120 acres, so we've we've put it in another 20 to maximize our water rights. And when they bought the property, like I said, that all needed to be replanted. So I put together a 15-year plan for them to 
to replant the vineyard. And the first third of that's already been done. And uh, the second third is just getting started. We just pulled out uh, a third of the vineyard right after harvest this year. And, you know, we're replanting that. And what's new about what we're doing is, and we're kind of blazing the trail here in Washington, is we're using rootstock. Almost all of eastern Washington's plant on its own roots uh, and has been for a long time. I didn't know that. And the reason is because, you know, warm sandy soils are not real um, conducive to phylloxera. And so they could get away with it, Mm. or at least they thought they could. And, you know, that certainly was true in in Monterey uh, originally as well. You probably know that story that Davis recommended uh, that people could grow vines on their own roots down there because it was warm, sandy soils. Well, after about 10, 15 years, you know, they got caught up with phylloxera. Well, Washington, that's been a little longer, but it's now finally happened that uh, that phylloxera is pretty well established in the Walla Walla area, and we're seeing it now in the Red Mountain area as well. So I just told the Trilladas that that, that was a risk that I wouldn't, like them to take and so uh, and in fact part of the argument I used with them because John Trelata was interested in in planting stuff on its own roots again I said well John part of the reason you don't want to do that is because rootstock allows you to tailor the 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 site to the vines you want to plant if you plant Cabernet say on its own roots then then in some soils, that's going to be too vigorous, and other soils is going to not be vigorous enough, and some soils is just right. But with rootstocks, if you if you pay attention to, you know, how vigorous the rootstock is, you can have just right everywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like a noble notion to want to do something like that, but not the yeah. science. Yeah. So, and the part of the problem up there was, and what I really struggled with and worked on a lot, was. Um, not so much phylloxera because any, I mean, all of the the rootstocks that people use are all resistant to phylloxera. But the main issue up in Washington is root knot nematodes, which is a, a, a problem in sandy soils the world over. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and in California, there's not been much work on high-quality vineyards in uh, with root knot, and the reason for that is that the 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 coastal vineyards where all the high quality fruit comes from, root knot's not a problem. It's it's really in the Central Valley where you see root knot, and those people in general are looking at volume, not quality, and so the rootstocks that they pick are not necessarily quality rootstocks. They're ones for volume, and so it's like. Okay, what do I do? And I asked a lot of people all over, and nobody really had a good answer for that. So we, I struggled quite a bit on it and picked rootstocks that I thought were going to be resistant to root knot, and I knew were high quality rootstocks. So, um, you know, we'll see. Yeah, we will. We'll see, and then we'll <laughs> come back to you. No, right. no. Well, you've, you've obviously you've got a great track record. I think this whole process of doing it is fascinating to me as a layperson. Um, simple questions here. How often are you up there in Washington? Uh, quarterly or thereabouts. Um, we make the, since we don't have a winery up there, we just have the vineyards. I mean, 
I've carved out a spot in the vineyard development for a winery, and at some point the the um, the Tornados, uh, as the as their brand grows, they're going to have to eventually do a winery. But like Dominus and and Opus here, neither one of them started with a winery. They started with the with the wines, and that's what we're doing up there as well. And and as the volume grows, at some point it will make economic sense to put a winery in. But so make- currently we're we're custom crushing. That makes sense. The one thing we haven't talked about, and I can make all kinds of assumptions, is specifically the grapes, Cabernet Sauvignon. Yes, we grow, um, actually the property was uh, a lot of different grape varieties. They, they, had, they had Chardonnay, but they eventually ripped that out uh, before the Trollados bought it. But they have Nebbiolo, for example. They got the budwood from Angelo Guy in Italy. Uh, yeah, and, but yeah, Nebbiolo there doesn't really work very well. Um, but we grow Syrah, Cab, Merlot, uh, Malbec, uh, Simeon, and Sauvignon Blanc. And uh, the Gellis's, Patricia hated Cabernet Franc, so they didn't have any Cabernet Franc. Really? Yeah. which wow. is a, uh, I've tasted a bunch of Washington Cabernet Francs, and they're lovely. So uh, we've, we've, we're planning on, on, we've grafted some of the original uh, vineyard over to to Cabernet Franc just to see how it does, and it's fine. So we're, this next replant, we're actually putting you know, Cabernet Franc in the ground. It's such a wonderful grape. It's just a sad thing to hear people say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe it's a bad experience, I don't know. Uh, to me, the, um, the other thing that's really good is the Sauvignon Blanc up there. Uh, but, you know, the Trelawas really want to do reds, and so we're, we're focusing on doing, you know, Red Bordeaux varieties. So the the only concession, and they actually like this idea, is I blend a little bit of Syrah in with the Cabernet. Uh, I love the the Syrah there is really good, and it, it adds a little complexity to the to the blend. And since it's New World, I can do what I want. And, <laughs> That's and, true. Uh, uh, in fact, Tony Trelato loved the idea because he, you know, he talks about or did talk about. Hermitage, which was uh, a term in in France, where uh, in poor vintages of Bordeaux they would buy Syrah from the Rhone and and blend a little in. And uh, so I, there's a history of doing it. What kind of a percentage are you saying? You know, four or five percent, or something like that? I mean, it depends. I mean, uh, it's really um, not a uh, a rote thing. Mm. Uh, and That's it, the fun part. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, so some years it's been five percent, and some years it's been ten. Uh, I don't know that I've done much more than that, but uh, I'm not opposed to it. It's really what the how it f- works into the blend. Syrah is pretty aromatic, and so you get much over ten percent. All of a sudden, it starts to smell like Syrah, and which you don't kind of takes over. Yeah, yeah. So blending has always been one of the most fun things I learn about winemaking because uh, to me it seems like one of the most challenging parts of it. But maybe not because that's what you do. That is really the epitome of what you do. Well, um, the challenging part is growing the grapes. Um, And, uh, you know, when I first got in the business uh, as a winemaker, um, I thought I could make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. And it wasn't until... My wife's a, um, in the food business, and at the time she was cooking at Chez Panisse, which is a well-known restaurant in, 
in Berkeley, and the restaurant was struggling to get all the fruit that, and vegetables that they needed, and so they had this idea of, they were the first ones to do the farm to table concept. And so they were buying, they were trying to grow their own stuff originally, and they couldn't supply, they couldn't grow enough. And so they wanted growers to grow stuff for them, and, and the growers would say, well, you know, I'll take enough. And so Alice had this great idea of kind of a wine tasting, but it was for vegetables. And it was, the thing was called the tasting of summer produce. And she brought all the high-end uh, chefs from all over the Bay Area to, to the Oakland Museum. And the, the woman that was doing the gardens for Chez Panisse got all these farmers to come. And it was really like a, a wine tasting. And, you know, they, where they, the, you know, you taste tomatoes from here and there or whatever. And uh, it was an epiphany for me. They had a table that was probably 60 feet long that had every kind of tomato possible, some that were hydroponically grown, some that were dry farmed and all this stuff. And I just remember tasting them and thinking, oh, you know, I'm in the same boat here. I got one ingredient and it better tastes good as fruit. And, uh, and so that got me started on trying to figure out what makes grapes taste the best. And, you know, wine quality is 80% the fruit, I think. And then the, um, the other 20% is what you do in the cellar. And mostly it's just don't screw it up. Yeah, that, if I heard that <laughs> once. <laughs> and of course, you know, the, the, you know, the, uh, the other tool that you have is oak. It's the spice that you can use. And so, you know, don't, don't make it too obvious. Yeah. And that's well said because that's the problem. Sometimes you do run into a wine that is too obvious and that's the first thing to hit you in the face. Yeah. And it, that took me a long time to figure out because uh, maybe I still haven't, but you know, you taste uh, first growth Bordeaux that are in a hundred percent new oak and they don't taste oaky. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, how do they do that? Uh, and I remember asking one of a winemaker in Bordeaux once about, and he said, I said, what kind of oak do you use? He said, well, good oak. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, he was, you know, a little flippant, but in yeah, fact, sure. uh, but in fact, that's the case. Yeah. Uh, and there's as much black magic going into barrel making as there is in winemaking. And, and uh, so you, you have to find, uh, Coopers that know what they're doing sure. and trust them. It goes back to our conversation before we started recording, and that's all about quality and fighting the good fight. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, my goal as a winemaker is to make wine that, you know, when you taste it, you just spontaneously say, oh, well, this is delicious. You don't have to, th you don't have to think too hard about right, it. Right, right. Uh, and, uh, you know, how many times is it like, okay, I got, you know, it's like, it, it's, you know, you're talking about the tannin or the this or the that's, and, and it's like, well, you know, you shouldn't have to do that in do my life. Like it? It, it should just taste delicious, and you shouldn't have to work at it. And I'm the one that has to work at that. Right, right. And the best thing is when you're around people, the reaction you have or the food, whatever it might be. I mean, that's why wine is such a wonderful experience. Yeah, and I mean, I, that, you know, since my wife was you know, was a chef before a food writer. Um, and now that she's, you know, writing cookbooks, we spend a lot of time at home uh, when she's recipe developing, 
tasting what she's doing and seeing, you know, talking about what else could be done to it. And the same with when I bring home samples of wine and, you know, we, I get skewered for this or that or the other thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, wine should just be something that goes along with a dinner, not the other way around. Yeah. Um, I mean, these days, there's so many wines that are cocktails. Uh, you know, they're not really food wines, and I'm not interested in making that kind of wine. And I think that's, uh, you know, wines that are high alcohol and high pH and and maybe even a little sweet, um, are things that are uh, fine on their own as a cocktail, but uh, they're not palate cleansers. And you know, for, for dinner, you want something that, that cuts through the fat if you're having a, a you know, foie gras or whatever. <laughs> well said. You know, this is always a fascinating conversation, talking to winemakers, learning things, learning how you, you talk with your wife and interact over food. And uh, it just shows how much of this is a cooperative effort. Uh, well, one thing, one thing I would like to add that, um, that I think is important about when we were talking about wine blending um, was uh, when we make blends with all the wineries, whether I was at Chimney Rock or or now with Clipson, um, when you come up with a blend, I, I usually like take a sample of it home and have it with dinner. Hmm. And you know, it's, I don't think I mean a lot of winemakers that never occurs to them to do. And often I change the blend after I've had it with dinner. Interesting. Depending on what I've had it with. But I try to have it with something that I think would be the right thing to have with that. And a lot of times it's like. Oh well, maybe that's a little flat. Maybe it needs to be. I need to spark it up a little bit with something that's a little more tart, or you know, there's all kinds of things that could be. And and it really, you really need to think about how it f fits with food. I've never heard a winemaker say that. Not that I haven't asked that question. And now, off mic, I'm going to steal that from you and use that. <laughs> you can. And now there is one more question I do want to ask you. By okay. the way, before I wrap up, and okay. uh, this one may take a couple moments to think about it because I never got the chance to ask you this. For all the interviews, I'm sure you've done plenty. You've done media, that sort of thing. Uh, this is my favorite question for winemakers. What's the one question that you've never been asked that you would like to be asked? Um, hmm. That I've never been asked? I don't know. I mean, I suppose, do I like it? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, people never ask you whether you like your own wine or not. And uh, I... I, I not that I necessarily need to have somebody um, ask me that, but uh, I can't remember ever being asked that question. No, I could see that. Maybe that people uh, might see that as being offensive, but that's a good answer. Yeah. yeah. Most importantly for our listeners who'd like to learn about Clips, and is there a, a, a web page? Is there a, yes. What would it's, that be? It's Clipson, K-L-I-P-S-U-N. So it's the clipped sun that we talked about, uh, .com. Really, after so many years, this is so good to get back together and talk with you again, Doug. I really appreciate your uh, getting in touch with me on this. Oh, you're, uh, thank you. I've I, you know, been watching your, uh, your stuff for a long time, and it's like, well, how come he hasn't asked me? <laughs> <laughs> so I ask you. <laughs> Learn more by visiting clipson.com. 
Thanks for listening to the longest-running wine podcast online. Subscribe to the podcast at lifebetweenthevines.com or sign up to our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Life Between the Vines comes to you from Fifth Floor Recording Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Produced and edited by Ray Fister. Our host is Kay Paskoff. Our web geek is Dan Gieschen. Original music by Ray Fister. Copyright 2023.